you know, when I came in the Navy in 1978, uh, we were going to fight big battles with the Soviets, you know, up there in the Iceland-UK gap. And then uh, fast forward 30 plus years later, and I'm out uh, chasing pirates that are 21, 22 year old. And the most sophisticated thing they had was an RPG and an AK-47. I can't tell you how much fun I had. Welcome back to the third season of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about the modern version of something that we discussed in episodes number two and four on piracy and the Barbary Wars. For most of the past roughly 200 years, the United States Navy did not have to worry about pirates, but that all changed about 20 years ago amid a civil war in Somalia, which led to a whole chain of events that we'll get into, complete with ship hijackings, ransoms, shootouts, and a very large U.S. Navy and international intervention off the Horn of Africa to tamp down on the modern pirate threat. And with me to discuss this is none other than the man in charge of eliminating the pirate threat off the coast of Somalia, retired Rear Admiral Terry McKnight, who served as the first commander of Combined Task Force 151, which is a multinational unit formed to combat piracy off the coast of Aden. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. And it's, uh, this, is, this is a great thing. And in, in your introduction, you, you mentioned I've uh, been chasing pirates since, uh, since the birth of our nation. And, you know, I always say that as long as ships go to sea, there'll always be pirates. So it's, it's happening every day out at sea. But it just happened to be a very big event back in, you know, 2007 to, to about 2011. Right. We have records going back more than 3,000 years of piracy because anytime there's a, a bunch of money essentially going to sea, and a bunch of poor people on land, and they're looking at that and being like, that looks easy, right? And and that's exactly right. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Uh, you know, you, you had a, uh, you know, Somalia was, it was probably, uh, if you list all the nation states in the, uh, you know, in the world, I think they rank, you know, at the very, very bottom of, uh, in wealth and in gross domestic product. Their economy is just has been bad for many, many years. And that's exactly right. They just had poor people that were trying to make a living and they went to sea. The sad part about it is that uh, 50% of the pirates that went to sea at that time to try to uh, hijack a vessel didn't come back. So not only did they uh, not get any money, but they, you know, their life ended. Yeah. And so I'll, before we sort of get into the big discussion of piracy, A, there's a lot of trade going through it, right? It's, it's you know, near the Suez Canal trade going just up and down the coast of Africa there. A lot of trade from the Middle East and from India. But why does the United States inherently care about this? None of these ships are flagged as American vessels. They have very few, if any, American crew aboard. Why not let someone else take, take care of this? If you want the protection of the United States Navy, maybe you should meet the more expensive U.S. requirements, hire some U.S. crew, and register the ship as American rather than flying the cheapest flag of convenience that you can find from Panama or Liberia or the Marshall Islands, the Bahamas, etc. Great, great question. And, and uh, you know, back in... Uh... See, I got out there in January 2009, and before that, uh, back in the end of 2008, there was an Operation Atlanta that was stood up by the NATO nations. And so they were actually the first group of ships that got out there, and they were, they were there when I got out there, too. But, the, you know, the, the key thing is, is that in the world we are today, everybody looks to the United States Navy for leadership. We are a, a you know, the, the world is, is, is many times, you know, capitalism, you know, goes across the sea. I always talk about three big figures, 90, 70, and 80. 80% is the number of people who live near a coastline or water. 70% is the size of the, uh, the seas. 
You know, and then 90% or more of all the economy and the commerce that goes across the world is goes by sea. It doesn't come in in FedEx or, or UPS airplane. So a lot of the economy of the world, whether it's oil, you know, you know, cars and everything is transferred there. So at that time, the, the U.S. was kind of said, well, we need to get involved because we need to show leadership. And that's when they stood up uh, Task Force 151. And I was lucky enough to be the first commander. So, yes, uh, you know, a lot of the trade that was going through there was not going to the United States. But it's important that we have to make sure there's a free flow of commerce across the sea. And that will always be a mission of the United States Navy. And it was sort of taken over post-World War II from the Royal Navy and because, you know, we, the United States, are very dependent on trade and, and we benefit a lot from the overall network of trade and making our country and our citizens better off. And we are, we are the capable nation sort of capable of doing that. And while taking over a, some Somali vessels or other vessels in isolation is not a problem. It's sort of a... Uh, exactly right. <clears throat> and, you know, it was funny... When, uh, when I got out there, President Obama was, you know, was, was in office and the Secretary of State was uh, Hillary Clinton at the time. And I remember seeing an email, you know, going back and forth from the State Department. And, and you know, it said, 2009, we still have pirates. You know, so, you know, even the State Department was, was put back. But, it, but I tell you, it was, it was a fun mission. And, and, the, and the sailors, when I was out yep, there, were involved. Yep. They loved it because, because they, they were hands-on. You know, you, as you know, you spend a lot of time at sea, you know, looking at radar consoles or, you know, just driving around ships. But these people were actually chasing these pirates around on the high sea, and it, and it was a lot of fun. And so what were some of the, the push factors for these fishermen? Obviously, they were poor, and there's a bunch of undefended ships going by, but that, that's true across you know, huge parts of the world, right? Lots and lots of shipping channels go through close to land, and there's a lot of poor people around the world. Why Somalia? Well, that's a great question, and, and it's a way I've explained it many times is that, you know, you know, back in, let's say, 2005 timeframe, some foreign fishing vessels were coming inside of not only the economic exclusion zone, but also coming inside of territorial waters of Somalia, because it's a, it's a very fertile fishing area in the Gulf of Aden and off the, uh, the east coast of Somalia. So these fishing vessels were coming in there, and some, you know, some rather uh, smart people got together and said, well, we don't have a navy of, of anything, so let's go out there and hijack these vessels. So they hijacked these fishing vessels and then they were getting, you know, let's say $25,000, $30,000. And they said, whoa, well, if we can get $25,000 or $30,000 for, for a fishing vessel, what can we get for a 40,000 ton cargo ship? And so that's, and that's how they got started. They said, let's go out there and start uh, uh, hijacking, you know, larger ships. And, they, and they, had, they had no interest at all in what the cargo was. They just wanted to get the ships because they knew that they, if they caught the ships, they, they, the crews would want to be released and the, and the owner of the vessel would probably want to get the cargo to someplace so they get paid. So they, they were against getting ransom payments. One of the largest one was a, uh, mm -hmm. a very large uh, oil tanker called the Sirius Star that was off the coast of Somalia. And basically it was waiting for, for where to go, basically. It just come out of the Straits of Hormuz and it was, it was headed, you know, eventually to the Gulf of Mexico. And so it was just steaming off the coast at a very slow speed. And sure enough, they went out there and captured it and they got, and they got millions of dollars because the cargo of the ship was worth much. But these guys, they probably didn't know what was on the ship. These are sort of bottom of the barrel sophistication pirates in contrast to some of the other pirate threats that we are seeing today in the Gulf of Guinea and off of Nigeria and whatnot, where it seems like these guys that were 
the, the new new generation of pirates is a little bit more sophisticated than than these Somali guys, right? Right, you're exactly correct. In fact, I remember on one one occasion they um, they uh, captured a, a load of uh, benzene, and you know it's it's a very toxic chemical, and and when it when mm-hmm. it gets hot, it just smells. And and these pirates that were holding the vessel in the, in these pirate camps were getting sick and all that kind of stuff. So they really just wanted to give it up. And we had another case uh, that was. Um, it was kind of interesting. There was a Ukrainian arms carrier that was captured. And of course, and the, it was carrying um, tanks, right? Absolutely. And yeah, and okay. The, I remember this. <laughs> and the, uh, you know, the, our national security people thought that they were going to, you know, offload the tanks in, in uh, Somalia, drive them across Africa, you know, get on ships and then invade the United States. So we basically, huh. we had four ships playing man to man defense on this one, uh, you know, this one uh, arms carrier. And of course it was, it was eventually released and, and the CEO of the ship was a great guy named Mark Janung, who after they released that came up and, and be, uh, came, the Vela Golf came up and, be, and was my flagship and did an outstanding job of catching most of the pirates that we captured when I was out there. Well, that sort of brings up a, a question that, that I wanted to talk about, which was the legal framework surrounding piracy. And, you know, piracy has been illegal in various manners for forever, essentially, right? But essentially, piracy. Under international law today, it's it's an illegal act and essentially robbery on the high seas, and the high seas being farther than twelve miles from land. And twelve miles from land is the territorial waters of a country, and so robbery within twelve miles, that is robbery. Outside of that, that is piracy. And we, well, actually, the United States Navy is not technically bound by the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, (UN Clause), but we we adhere to it. By and large, and and I'm just going to read this. But Article 101, 101, which deals with piracy of the UN clause, states that any illegal act of violence or detention, or any act of depredation committed for private ends by the crew or the passengers of a private ship or a private vessel, and directed on the high seas against another ship or aircraft, or against persons or property on board such a ship or aircraft, against the ship, aircraft, persons or property any place outside the jurisdiction of the state, dot, 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 right? All of that is piracy. And so it has to be, you know, essentially for private ends, aka we're trying to make money, right? So not not terrorism. And it has to take place outside of that 12 nautical miles. And with that, it allows, as long as piracy is going on, any nation can go essentially stop it, right? Is that is that a pretty good summary? Absolutely. It's an excellent summary. The, the, the problem that we ran into, you know, when, when, when I got out there, the plan was to, when we captured the pirates that we would send them to Kenya and they would prosecute them. Okay. So the, when we started to catch a lot of the pirates, they, the Kenyans came back and said, okay, stop, stop, stop. You know, you're giving us too many of them and we don't have to do. Um, there were very few countries that when I was out there actually in their, in their rules of engagement wanted to capture pirates. That was the United States, the Danes, and and the Brits. So everybody else basically just you know did a catch and release, you know, just to, you know put them back in there. But the, 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 because nobody wants these guys, it's a bunch of you know right, Somali right tribesmen effectively, right? right? Exactly, um, tribesmen slash fishermen, right? And you don't want to go through the. You're gonna to have to put them in jail for a long time. You're gonna to have to find interpreters for the courtroom. How are you gonna like have admissible evidence? you know, among all this stuff. I mean, just a, a multi, multi-million dollar rigmarole. Right. When hey. really you just want these guys to, you know, like uh, right. w- one day of captivity for these guys is worth more than they're ever going to make right. in their entire lives. Right. 
Like, we don't want to deal with these guys. We want them to just stop. And, you know, and the thing is, you know, that, you know, most of the crews on, on these purchase ships are from, you know, no numerous countries. And these ships don't want to, you know, send these crews back to, you know, to Kenya, you know, to, to you know, be witnesses and all that kind of stuff. So, so the defense attorneys would say, well, I don't, I don't, I can't get the, you know, the captain of the ship to come, you know, testify and everything like that. But, you know, the, the, the funny thing about, you know, the, a lot of the, the Somali pirates, you know, uh, you know, they, 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 of course, they wanted to get, you know, get, you know, some cash. For but the other thing is they, they wanted to get, you know, out of Somalia. And, you know, if they were captured by a, a let's say, you know, the, the Dutch Navy or something like that, and they got them back to, you know, the Netherlands, prosecute them, you know, give them whatever, you know, 60 days in jail. The next thing they do is they release them. And then what happens to these people when they get released? You know, you, you go to the, uh, you know, the international airport in, in the Netherlands and guess who's driving your taxi cab? You know, a, a, <laughs> an old pirate because now he's, he's happy. He's happy as he could be because he's out of Somalia and he's uh, an immigration loophole. <laughs> absolutely. He's actually, he's got a, he's got a new life. So, so that's, that's a, that's a win for them. So yeah, it was, I mean, it was very hard. Now, now the, the thing that I, that I will say, you know, there were several occasions and that they actually attacked U.S. Navy warships and we brought them back to the United States and prosecuted. And our, if you look at our piracy laws, they are very, very rigorous. I mean, there's people that, you know, these guys, I haven't chased them in a while, but they were, they were still in prison there in uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And they, and these people were doing hard time. So uh, our, oh, yeah. our, our piracy laws are very, very uh, stringent. So if I mean, they, that goes back to the constitution, absolutely, there's right. you know, article, article one, section eight, Right. Gives Congress the power to define and punish piracy and felonies on the high seas and right. offenses against the laws of nations. Because we were dealing with the big piracy problem right. when we wrote the Constitution. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, they just, there, there was no ACLU for pirates that wanted to go back and change the piracy laws to, you know, give them whatever, you know, six months in prison or something like that. But, you know, it was, it's just, uh, you know, it was kind of sad that, you know, they, they actually, you know, went after U.S. Navy warships. Yeah, I, I have a feeling they did not realize it. They they were Absolutely. so right, right, oblivious, right? That, right? You know, or just ignorant, right? That right. they that they did not realize. Yeah, you know, big ship must be money. Right? You know, can't is is that a gun? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, yeah exactly. It, right, right. And that's right. Right, right. It's it's the counter the classic counterinsurgency problem of of it is so much more expensive to deal with this stuff. Just a disproportionate number of resources is is spent to have destroyers and helicopters and sailors loiter outside of there than it is for, you know, a couple dudes on a, a skiff with an RPG and AK-47s, uh, total economic value, $20,000 right, to right. go and take over one of these, you know, multi-hundred million dollar ships. Exactly. Um, it, and so, okay, so so <laughs> we've, uh, we've gotten delightfully off course. Right. And so I want to I go back a little bit and talk about some of the tactics that you and CTF-151 and some of the earlier European Union task forces used to to counter that pirate threat. Right. And so, so when uh, there, were, there, were, there were really a couple options. And one was, uh, you know, you could, like a, a lot of nations, including the Chinese, they they'd set up a task force and they do an escort operation, you know, a convoy basically through the pirate area. So the, the problem with that, if you have, let's say, you know, four or five ships, you're going to transit that area at the slowest speed. So if, if you have a ship that can only do 10 knots, you know, it's going to, you know, it's going to take you forever to, to transit uh, 400 miles. So basically what we did is 
there's the old question, you know, you know, why did Jesse James rob banks? Because that's where the money was. So what we did is we looked at some historical data of where most of the pirate attack actions occurred. And so what we did is we put kind of blocks in this in this part of the in the Gulf of Aden and just put ships in there because you know the, the Gulf of Aden is is uh, thirty thousand square miles. You know it's three times the Gulf, size of the Gulf of Mexico. So we did we just didn't have enough you know ships to, to be all over the place. So we stayed in that area. And and I you know at the uh, lessons learned I thought it was pretty successful. You know because those ships they transited through there uh, and it was basically a, stri- a straight line north of, uh, you know, from off the coast of Somalia, you know, from where, uh, where most of these pirates came. So they would just camp out up in there and then wait for, wait for ships to go by. So we just vaguely sit up there. And then, we, you know, we used uh, helicopters, you know, to, to fly around uh, daily. You know, I, you, you learn different things about different navies that was out there. You know, on a U.S. Navy ship, we have, let's say, two helicopters, and we probably have eight pilots that can fly, you know, mostly, let's say, 16 hours a day. So we said, okay, we'll give blank, blank, blank ship, you know, and for instance, the uh, Absalon, which was the, was the Danish ship. I said, well, you'll fly eight hours, you know, this, that. Well, the CO came back to me and says, hey, look, I got one pilot and one helicopter and, I, you know, basically two crew members. And he says, I guarantee you, I will get this helicopter off the deck in 30 minutes or less if, if it's needed. So I, I just can't afford to fly around, you know, for an extended period of time. So so we mm-hmm. learned a lesson there and, and that's that's what we did. So. So, you know, it was a combination of, uh, you know, a lot of great navies out there working that, you know, had different tactics, but but we all worked together. Uh, and like I said, the Chinese were out there. They escorted them. And then when I was out there, that was their first out-of-area uh, task force in, uh, you know, 2009. So uh, look where they are now and today. So so that that's basically mm-hmm. the tactics we, we used. To, and then we felt that, you know, if, if a ship got under attack, if we could get a helicopter there or a ship within 15, 20, 30 minutes, we, we could stop the, uh, the pirate attack. What was the daily operational tempo like out there? You sort of talked a little bit, we're, we're flying helicopters. And then when that daily operational tempo gets interrupted by some indication of a pirate attack, and I, I, what is that, right? Is that, you know, a radio call from motor vessel, something, mm-hmm. something? What happens then? Can you sort of break that down and and what the task force would be doing? Sure. So usually, you know, it was, it was, most of the attacks happen, you know, in the morning. I mean, I don't know why, but, but it just did. They, I guess the pirates, had, they had a tactic. They would, uh, you know, the it, sun comes up, you know, in the east every day and everything. And so the ships are transiting to the east. And then, you know, maybe the sun's in the eyes of the, you know, the, the usually there's just one person on the ship, you know, an able-bodied seaman or, and a deck deck officer. So one or two people are on the deck. So then, you know, if, if it comes under attack, the, you know, it's usually three or four, maybe five skiffs that are going after the vessel. They start firing at them, whether with, with RPGs or, or machine guns. And then, uh, you know, the, these people at that, you know, back then, you know, basically they're scared. They, you know, they, they don't, they, they don't want to die. So they would slow the ship down. Which is the biggest mistake? Because once you slow down, then you then the pirates had an easy time, you know, just climbing the side of the ship. So then they'd put out a distress call on ch- on channel sixteen, which is a universal, you know, security net. And then we, you know, we'd go into action. They a lot of the ships have uh, AIS at that time. We could we could locate where we are, and then we we maneuver, you know, X ship as fast as they can. And then you know, if we had a helicopter in the air, get it off or get get a helicopter off the deck and fly around and get over there. So, like I said, if we were there within 30 minutes, we were usually in pretty good shape. We could we could ward off the pirate attack, whether 
you know, warning shots or, or just, uh, you know, some type of evasive steering from the merchant ship and then uh, ward it off. So, so we, uh, you know, we, we were pretty lucky. And then, you know, sometimes we'd, we'd, uh, we'd go after the pirates if we thought, you know, uh, they were good. Uh, but the, the, it was like the dog catching the car, you know, a lot of times we'd catch pirates mm-hmm. and, you know, then we, we'd go back to our command in, in fifth fleet and, and they'd say, well, you know, this really doesn't meet the criteria what we do. So I would say, you know, 80, 85, maybe 90% of them were catch and release. We'd, we'd capture them and, you know, read their, you know, tell them, say, Hey, and it was kind of funny because we had Somali, you know, interpreters and they'd, and they'd stand there and read, and, and read to these people guys it was all guys no female pirates and they would you know they'd say hey you've been a you know bad person you've been a pirate you know anyway i mean it's crazy this, the guys standing there reading this it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's here we are in, in 2009 and where this is how we're fighting war so then we'd put them back in, we're caught, caught up in the in the in the legalisms right. <laughs> and then we'd put them back we'd take their weapons put them back in the skiff and then tell them not to do it again but they, they'd come back you know? yeah this is you know when i was active duty I, there were some sailors that I'd, come across who had served in off the Gulf of Aden in various capacities. And they said that the pirates eventually learned which were the navies that felt a little more bound by legal niceties and which were not. And, you know, they sort of kept doing their thing when the U S Navy and, you know, probably some of the, the Western European navies were, were around. But as soon as the Russian or the Indian Navy vessel was in the area, uh, they, they, you know they were they were gone Absolutely. right they're like right. all right we're, we're gonna wait these guys right. out right because the russians they'll they'll just shoot us the indians they they've been like sinking pirate motherships left and right, right. like yeah. <laughs> we're done yeah there was i mean there was one occasion i was out there that the russians actually you know captured some pirates and and then uh you know they, they brought them on board and you know interviewed them for a while i guess and then and then they they put them back in the skiff and mysteriously the skiff uh you know they said that the pirates uh you know they were 250 nautical miles off the coast uh, disappeared, you know, and, you know, probably with the aid of some bullet holes in their, in their skiff that, that did it. So, so, right. so you're right. It was, a, it, yeah. was uh, yeah. uh, it, it was, it was, it was, every Navy had that, you know, they're different, but uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 I would say the NATO and the uh, coalition nations just, you know, you know, try, you know, we tried to treat, treat them, you know, with the, you know, as is required by human rights. You know, in combination with the military aspect, there was a lot of diplomatic and economic efforts to combat piracy and sort of building up some of the economic base of of that that region of the world of Somalia, and then talking with a lot of the insurance companies to sort of implement that little bit of the convoy routing scheme that you were talking about, put some guards on ships, implement some citadels and anti-piracy measures. How effective were and, and what were the most effective of those anti-piracy measures? That well, you, you know, great thing. So let, let's, you know, let's talk about the ships first. You know, they had fire hose, you know, Constantina wire, a lot of things, so, you know, and it was relatively um, okay, I guess. The biggest thing was speed. If you were doing plus 15 knots and going through the Gulf of Aden to 15 knots, your, your chances of, of survival were, were 99.9%. It was those slow moving vessels that, you know, just just couldn't just couldn't make you know fifteen knots. So those they, those were the big targets, and if they had a low freeboard because it was either climb. So that was one thing. So when I got out there in two thousand nine, there were there were the you know the merchants came and said the navy's got to protect. We don't we don't have armed security guards trained on the ship right now, and so there's a couple issues. One, you could not bring armed security guards through the Suez Canal. So 
let's say you had a, a, a merchant vessel that left Hamburg and was headed to Singapore. You know, where, where was he going to put on a armed security team? You know, because they're not stopping, you know, for anywhere in there. They're, they're continually going through it. And the, and the restrictions of having armed security teams on in the Suez Canal and, and, go, and offloading in some of the region's armed security was, was restricted back then. So, uh, some, you know, whenever there's money to be made, you know, these, these people came up with, I want to say, offshore security uh, boats that basically at point A and point Z of the, the Gulf of Aden, where the transit points, they would load on these armed security teams at one point and they'd be on there. So the armed security teams probably made the biggest impact because they, they would, you know, fire at mm-hmm. will at the pirates. Uh, they didn't have any basically rules of engagement. Because who's going to prosecute? And so that, that I think that was the big thing. And you know, and I went, you know, went back, you know, earlier when I mentioned that, you know, fifty percent of the, you know, pirates didn't come up. So I thought, you know, a lot of them just said, hey, they, you know, we're not making a lot of money out there, and you know, we don't want to die. Because you know, it's a funny thing is, you, you know, Somalia, you know, has you know, fifteen hundred miles of coastline, but they're not seagoing people. They, uh, the Russians, in the during the Cold War, tried to. Make it a better state by you know teaching them how to fish and all kinds, but it, it just didn't take off. And then you know they, uh, so they they're not they're just not seafaring people, which is which is kind of funny. So two things I want to ask: one, was there any evolution by the pirates to change tactics? And two, what what were the rules of engagement for, say, a helicopter? Right, you get the call that there's some sort of pirate attack going on. Right, there's a couple of skiffs and they're approaching uh, a motor vessel. Right, so a, a big container ship. And there's clearly some intent for piracy. Maybe you can see an AK-47 or an RPG or something like that. Can the helicopter just open up on them? What 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 establishes the the barrier to okay? These are really bad guys. Maybe we should do something about it. Right. So so you know there's there's a lot going on out there in the Gulf of Aden. Let me tell you. So basically, three things there. They're fishing, which there was there was a, I mean, there's a lot going on in the fishing. Uh, number two, there's a lot of uh, drug smuggling, and you know some people refer to it as the Hashish Highway. And then three, there, you know, there's pirates, and finally there's a, you know human trafficking, you know, going uh, north from outside of Africa, going up through Yemen, and there was you know there's refugee camps up there. But anyway, so so if you look at the the vessels down there, if if you see a a skiff or a bunch of skiffs together, and they've got AK-47s and RPGs and no fishing nets. It's kind of suspected that they're pirates, but we really couldn't go after them. So let's say they attacked a ship and then we were, the helicopter would show up and basically they may break off and we'd get permission to, you know, to start chase them. And then we chase them. And if they, if they did not stop, I had the, you know, the authority to, to issue, you know, warning shots. And most of the time when, when a helicopter, you know, starts firing warning shots, these, these people come to stop. I did not have the authority to use deadly force. There was never an occasion for anything like that, but that was, you know, resided back in, in the in the Fifth Fleet uh, headquarters. So, um, I mean, that that's you know what what we what they could what the helicopter would do, and you know, same thing, you know, when and then we'd get the ship there and then and board the skiff and and you know see what see what they were up to. And, and wag the finger at them, tell them you know very bad, please do not do this again, right? Sort of, sort of deal. Right, right, right. It is a combined task force, right? Meaning that it's international. And that was a big, I would say success, right? A political success in that we're giving, we're getting international partners on board because we, the United States Absolutely. Navy, do not want to be the perpetual Gulf of Aden task force. And that means getting other allies on board because uh, it's just not a particularly good use of U.S. resources indefinitely. And 
I thought it was interesting. One of the very smart political ways that we went about that was offering command opportunities to countries whose navy and fleet did not normally get those. And so that created an internal lobbying force of, by those naval officers, by, by those naval hierarchies to their governments to, hey, we, we really want to be a part of this. Was that intentional? How did that work? Uh, and how did those other command structures integrate? Right. I think I think it's all of the above. Yeah, you know it's kind of interesting. The um, uh, when when I got out there, there was Operation Atlantis, and and um, you know there's been debate over years whether to continue. But anyway, the first commander of Operation Atlantis was was a, uh, a a Greek admiral. In my task force was a Turkish ship, and and it was I mean it was a great ship that did everything, and the first non-U.S. Navy Task Force 151 commander was from Turkey. And so, you know, you know the politics between Greece and Turkey. So, yes, there, I mean, there was a lot of politics going on. And the, the and I, you know, my hat's off to, uh, you know, Admiral uh, Gary Ruffhead, who was CNO at the time. You know, the, the, the Greeks, excuse me, the, the Turks came to him and said, look, we, we've got, a, you know, it's, it was an old, uh, you know, uh, old, one of our old FFGs, but we really don't have a command ship. So he basically said, let's sanitize a, a cruiser, you know, an Aegis-class cruiser, and, and figure it out how to get the, uh, the Turkish admiral on there to, to use that as his task force flagship. And it worked out very well. But, you know, since then, since uh, I think there's been uh, just a few U.S. Navy admirals that have been out there. So it's a great opportunity for, for these, uh, like you said, for these, for these nations, you know, to command a task force and, and show, demonstrate that they... They have a capable leadership skills and and a, and a capable. So how, how does that work from a? How does that work when you have a Turkish admiral embarking on a U.S. ship as his command ship? Is he hanging out in CIC uh, with his his staff? Presumably, what are the actual logistics of that? I had not. Uh, I didn't uh, know yeah, that. yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, I wasn't out there then, but basically, you know. As I said, you know, the CNO said, let's make it work. You know, let's 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 cordon off part of you know CIC for for the the Task Force 151 and and, and make the other half, um, you know, you know for for U.S. Navy operations. And you know, let's let's put it this way, you know, a, uh, a counter piracy operations is not uh, you know a high national security thing. It's you know it's really more of a Coast Guard mission. But uh, so you know, we just. Uh, they worked it out, and it, and like I said, it, it worked out great. So we just you know kept spaces, and and uh, you know everybody was happy. Interesting. And so, any uh any particularly good good stories? A favorite pirate pirate story or pirate uh, aborted pirate takeover or something that you that you had from your time in CTF one fifty one? You know, I, there's I I could tell you if it, it was like it, it was like a comedy every day. And one thing I I need I. I'm remiss in saying that, you know, when we were out there, uh, we could not call them pirates. They were suspected pirates. And I, I don't uh, know yes. the logic behind that. And I never, I never knew when they got their pirate merit badge. But, when, you know, whenever I had press thing, I, I'd have to say, you know, it was suspected pirate. But I, I think one of the uh, greatest operations. So we, we picked up the first group of pirates we, we picked up. And, 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 you know, back here in the United States, I thought they were going to name a hall after me at the Naval Academy. I was the next Steve in Decatur. You know, it was all over the news, you know, and we captured these pirates, you know, we sent them to Kenya, everything. It was just, you know, it was a perfect operation. You know, my wife said, you know, people were calling because I, I was all over the nightly news and all that kind of stuff. So I was a, a real hero. 
So the next group of pirates we caught, and it wasn't much longer after that, the, um, the, right, we called up and, and we said, hey, we got them and all this kind of stuff. And the Fifth Fleet were pushed back and said, well, you know, we really, we really truly don't think you got enough evidence and all that kind of stuff. So I went to the commanding officer of the ship, uh, Mark Janung, and I said, Mark, you know, the only way we can get these, hold these pirates on board if we make that skiff unseaworthy, because we can't put them back in there in a, in a skiff. <laughs> so he, he uh, manned the rails with every single firearm that he had. I think he fired a Tomahawk missile at the skiff just to make sure. And the thing was up in flames in about, you know, 10 minutes. Anyway, so now we've got these on board. So, you know, how do we get rid of them? So I went over to the, uh, the Danish ship and, you know, had lunch with the Danish uh, captain. And he said, you know, we've gone through this all the time. And uh, so I, uh, I said, well, what, what can you do for me? He says, well, what we do is, you know, we call Operation Midnight Express. We just put them in the, uh, in the, in the rib, put them ashore and, you know, drop them off in Somalia. So I said, well, that's a great idea. Will you help me? And he says, absolutely. And he, and, and he got up from the, the lunch table and, and called his chief of naval operations. And they said, sure, we'll help you out. So I, I briefed it back to the fifth fleet. And as far as the farther the brief went up through the chain of command, you know, whether CENTCOM, Joint Chiefs, the dumber I got, you know, people were saying, how could you possibly want to put sailors, you know, in, in a boat, you know, U.S. sailors with Danish sailors in a boat, jump these people off. So, so we were stuck with them. And, uh, you know, so I, I, we didn't know what to do. Nobody wanted to take him. They didn't want to take him to Yemen and everything. So I had a, a lawyer, great guy. He's still on active duty. I just had lunch with him the other day, a guy named Pete Kobler. And so he got in touch with the, the Minister of Interior in the state of Putland, which is, you know, in Somalia. And basically he said, okay, uh, I think we can help you all out. We'll, we'll, we'll make an arrangement. So he said, but you have to talk to the, you know, the, the president of the uh, state of Putland. So I got on the, you know, I was all admiralish and this guy, uh, you know, there was the, you know, we were talking on the phone and you know, he said, oh, yes, yes, sir. We'll help you out. And, but he said, oh, please make sure you bring us some extra cash so we could, you know, we will be good. So we, you know, basically went in and they uh, sent out a, a boat. I don't know what they had until we exchanged it. So it was, I mean, it was just like, you know, stuff like that. It was the wild, wild west out there. Um, one of, I, you know, I talked, one of my favorite stories is the, uh, there was a Danish ship that was, excuse me, there was a Dutch ship that was, um, was hijacked and there was a Dutch Navy vessel out there and they captured them. And so, I mean, you know, there's no highway between uh, the Netherlands and, uh, and uh, the Gulf of Aden. So they had to, they had, where were they going to offload them? They were going to send them back to the Netherlands for, for the stand trial. So they, they worked out, they were going to go into Bahrain to offload them and the Bahraini, you know, government said, fine, but don't come into the pier until at night and KLM flight, you know, uh, leaves for back to the, go to the Netherlands. So they stayed off, you know, and then pulled in, you know, night and they take them in a van to the, to the Bahrain airport, you know, and they're you know, in these pup, you know, suits, you know, with rubber ties on them. And they walk down the jetway, you know, and the, and the uh, KLM flight 003 pilot says, well, who are these people? Well, they're suspected pirates. And he says, well, they're not coming on my plane. So you know, now they got to take them back, and you know it's, uh, it was just a mess. They had to, they had to send a C one thirty to pick them up and take them back. So, so I mean, I I could like I said I could go on for, for hours. Oh, Jesus. Stories. It was a it was something every, it, was, it was something different every day, and it was it was just so much fun. Interesting. <laughs> so you leave. What happens next, right? So the piracy threat is sort of gone today, but you know, we sort of talked about some of the factors that contributed to it. Um, was there 
one specific one that you think was the most important or was it just really a combination of all that you know sort of better practices by the motor vessels increased naval presence uh some economic incentives etc do you think that there was one specific thing or was it um just a medley yeah, I, I think it was a combination. You know, the, the, there was, like I said, there was a lot of the Navy involvement down there. Uh, um, the, the armed security teams played big. You know, and then, and then of course, you know, we, we tried, and I don't know how successful we've been. Yeah, but, you know, to you know, teach them how to do something else besides being a pirate, whether it's fishing or, you know, gardening or something. I don't know what, you know, what they, what they, what they do. But it was just try to, you know, to get them to do, you know, be, you know, good citizens and better people. So, so I think it was a combination. Um, and, but I think, you know, it was just, a, I think, a combination of everything together. You know, the, the merchant ships had to, you know, to decide to protect themselves, which is important. You know, the NATO nations and everybody else out there protecting stuff. So it was, I think it was a combination. I wouldn't say that it was one. But, you know, the, the, the great thing about it is, you know, very few operations, the military operations, do we see where everybody joins together and the United Nations. I mean, when, when I was out there in 2007, it was just starting. Uh, we could not go inside the territorial waters. And then later, late 2008, early 2009, the UN had a, the Security Council unanimously, you know, approved uh, the issue of going inside the territorial waters. So we could do anything we wanted, basically, to go in there. I had a, a stretched uh, Kaufman, who was my MU commander on one of the ships. You know, he every night in the briefing, he'd go, Admiral, I can fix this thing in about 30 minutes. Just let me put, uh, load up some weapons on uh, some of my Huey gunships, and we'll wipe exactly. out the village. Well, let's hold yeah, off yeah. on that. So. <laughs> so, so I mean, it's just there was a lot of things, but I think I did. But I think the 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 maritime nations of the world working together to stop. I mean, you know, in the Chinese, and you know, you asked me about memorable things. I I spent uh, the you know we'd see the Chinese go by every every uh, you know um, you know every every few days, and I had an interpreter and a young lady that. That you know, and I was sitting on the uh, bridge wing one day, and uh, you know, acting all admiralish, and, and and she passed me by, and she said, "Well, the Chinese task force is going by." So I said, "You know, as always, invite the admiral. His name was Admiral Du to to come visit." And uh, about ten minutes later, she comes back on the bridge wing, and she says, "He's accepted your invitation." And I said, no "Oh, you know, because now he, I can't." I, I, so I called. I uh, called back to Admiral Gordon, and I said, "David said He says, "Okay, you know." Just be prudent. And, you know, he came over to, I was on the boxer at that time, and he came over and uh, visited. And, you know, the, the crazy thing, you know, they didn't ask about, you know, what weapon systems we were going to, they asked about logistics, you know, how we did everything. And that was in 2009. And if you now look right now, you know, we, we did a lot of our stuff out of Djibouti. And now they have a, you know, they have a base in Djibouti. So they, so then they came over and it was a great visit. Uh, and then uh, the next, he said, hey, would you come over to, it was the Wuhan, which was one of their new DDGs, uh, come over for lunch. So I, 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 I can say, honestly, I think I'm one of the only few admirals in the United States Navy that's ever been underway on a uh, Chinese warship. So, so it was a great experience. And, and, and I, it's, it's impossibly hard for me to find the right words of what they're, and, you know, you've been on ships, you know, if you say, the, you know, the admiral's coming, let's <laughs> clean the ship, let's get the mess decks clean. And the birthing departments and everything. This place was just absolutely just sterile. I mean, it was like a you know emergency room. This place was so clean and everything like that. And I know they couldn't have done it in, in, in one day. So I, I just think that's the way the life that they're Interesting. living. Interesting. There's a, a little anecdote that I I think is so telling and funny 
which is on one of my ships, my first ship in San Diego, the CNO was coming for some sort of waterfront, you know, tour of some sort. And, and our ship was selected as one of the two that he was going to come visit. And so, you know, naturally there is a big cleaning and painting and uh, evolution for the week preceding it. And all, you know, productive work essentially stops besides that. And you know, before right. the CNO comes to visit, he has senior aid of some sort come and sort of do a pre-inspection and walk us through what, you know, he's going to walk here. He's going to say this. He's going to, you know, there's going to be photographers taking pictures of this. And, but the first thing he says when he comes aboard, he sort of steps inside and he goes, ah, fresh paint. It smells like the CNO is visiting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Any, anything that doesn't move, we paint. Right. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's funny. And so, but the Chinese, they sort of have their own piracy problem now in the South China Sea a little bit, um, by the Straits of Malacca and their own neighborhood. Right. Absolutely. And you know, uh, that, that was a, that was back in the, uh, when, when they had the tsunami that went through there and I forget what year it was, you know, there was the Straits of Malacca has always been historically a very, very, uh, let's say fertile area of piracy. But when the tsunami went through there, it actually wiped out, you know, a lot of the uh, pirate villages or, you know, skiffs and everything. So for, for a couple of years, they didn't have the capability to go out there. But yeah, uh, the South China Sea is, is a classic, you know, island, you know, hopping, you know, place where pirates can just, can just wait and, you know, pick up anything. And of course, the number of ships that go through the Straits of Malacca, you know, every day, you know, it's just there, you know, it's just, it's amazing. So yeah, absolutely right with the, what's going on in China down there. Yeah, and the Straits of Malacca, for anyone who doesn't know listening to this, is right by that southern tip of Asia before it turns into, uh, you know, sort of Oceania. And just a, a huge, huge, huge uh, trade route, uh, you know, with very high density, very close to land. And so that's a, a very uh, fertile area for pirates. And so, you know, the other spot that pirates are rearing their head again this is in the Gulf of Guinea, where— right there's a distinctly more bloodthirsty group of pirates who perhaps learned lesson of Captain Phillips um, and, and uh, are not keen on sticking around for the, the ransom payment anymore. Right. That's correct. It's, you know, the, the, uh, as I, whenever I talk about the, you know, Somali pirates actually had a pirate code where they, they really didn't want to harm the crew. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't care about what the, the cargo was. They just wanted to ransom the ships. It's, it's almost the direct opposite of the Gulf of Guinea. They want the uh, the cargo, which is oil, and if you know if if the the crew members don't cooperate, you know they're gonna they're gonna kill them, and they really don't care. So it, it's a it's a different type of, of piracy uh, you know operation out there. Yeah, it's a, like I said, as as long as ships go to sea, and there you know there's gonna be piracy. So right. Yep. I mean, you know, sort of founding of the U.S. Navy was piracy. Julius Caesar got kidnapped by pirates. Right. Exactly. Um. You know, it's uh, old as the sea, and and we are. You know, eventually we'll we'll go to space, and I think it's a a trope for a reason that there's always you know spaceship pirates and whatnot in in science fiction because uh, it's too tempting, too tempting. <laughs> and as I when I talk, my and my wife always gives me a hard time. I I always say that there's the two oldest professions in the world, uh, both begin with a P. One of them is, of course, we're talking about right now, and I'll let your imagination <laughs> right. wander on what what the other one is. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, well, excellent. Was there anything else that you sort of wanted to, to cover? I, I sort of moved through the, the stuff that uh, I was planning to talk about. Was there anything, any other saved rounds, I guess? 
No, I like I said, it was it it just it, you know when I I got the call in in uh, I think it was like November of two thousand eight. Say, hey, you're going to go out there and stand up this this operation, you know, counter piracy thing, and and you know, I, so I I said, well, what does all that mean? And nobody really knew because you know it was just kind of a last minute thing, which was good because you know most exercises or events we have you know months of planning and everything. So showed up there and. In 2009, went to Bahrain. Admiral Gordon at that time was the fifth fleet commander, and I asked him what my my orders were, and he slammed his uh, fist down on the table and said, "Sir, I want you to go out there and catch pirates." So that's what we did, and then of course we started to catch more pirates and you know things fell apart. Then, then you but wanted, it, it, but <laughs> right, you're right. What an but order, it, I mean, though, it was catch pirates. Right. Yeah, it was fun, and and uh, and you know, it was just it was. Uh, I, I I can't tell you how much fun it was. It was just uh, I. I so glad that I was part of it, and uh, I like to say, here it is. This is 2023, and it, you know, 2009, and I'm, and I'm still talking about it because uh, you know, people. It's I think people always are interested in pirates. It's just one of those things, you know. You know, you, you talk about engaging ships with you know, tomahawk missiles or something like that, and they say, okay. But I think you know, fighting pirates is just it's got that mystique about it. So, but it was right. it was fun, and 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 the, and the other thing, you know, uh, throughout most of my career. You know, I, I worked, you know, kind of with, you know, coalition forces, but not as close as I did every day out there. And some of the professionalism that I learned, you know, how they operate is remarkable. I mean, mm-hmm. the uh, the Danish the Danish Navy had this down perfectly. It's a great platform, the Absalon class. Uh, I would say it's like a littoral ship. And, uh, you know, I, I came back and kind of told everybody, you know, rather than building LCS, we should, you know, look at the, the Absalon class because it, was, it had great capability. And hmm. of course, that didn't go very far, but yeah, yeah, but, but anyway, right. <laughs> right, exactly. But anyway, but it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a ton of fun. And thank you, sir, for coming, and thank you, listener, for tuning in. I'm going to include a link to Admiral McKnight's book, Pirate Alley, Commanding Task Force 151 off Somalia, in the show notes, so you can go get yourself a soft copy or perhaps a a resold hard copy. If you've not done so already, please rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Write a review if you feel so inclined. And of course, shoot me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com about anything and everything. Until next time, fair winds and following seas. Look at me, sure. Look at me, sure. I'm the captain now. You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. But you have heard of me.